Hello everyone, I'm Bob Keezer, and this is the Son of Man Urantia Project. Today's episode is chapter 35, The Stay at Tyre and Sidon. Jesus and the crew arrived in Sidon Friday afternoon, June 10th. They entered town a quiet bunch, all of them deep in their own thoughts about what Jesus had taught them on this trip. Each of them grasped part of the message, but none of them got it all. They remained around Sidon for almost two and a half weeks before going north to visit the cities along the coast. Jesus stayed in the house of a well-to-do woman named Karuska, who had been a patient at the Bethsaida Hospital when Jesus had earlier been so popular and the apostles and the evangelist stayed with her friends that lived in the neighborhood. The Syrian Woman In Sidon, there was a Syrian woman named Norana, who had heard about Jesus being a great healer and teacher. This woman had a young daughter about 12 years old, who suffered from regular seizures. So the next day, Saturday afternoon, she took her child to see Jesus. Jesus had told the apostles and evangelists to keep quiet about him staying with Karuska because he needed some rest. And while his crew did as they were told, Karuska's servant had gone to Norana's house and told her Jesus was staying with them and urged her to take her daughter to see him. They thought, of course, that the girl was possessed by a demon. When Norana showed up at Karuska's house with her daughter to see Jesus, she was met by the Alpheus twins. These two told her that Jesus needed to rest and could not be disturbed. Norana said, fine and that her daughter and her would stay there until Jesus was done resting. Then Peter tried to reason with her, again saying that Jesus was tired and needed peace and quiet, and tried to get her to go home. But it was all futile. All Narana would say was, I will not leave here until I have seen your master. I know he can cast the demon out of my child, and I will not go until the healer has looked at my daughter. Then Thomas tried talking to her, again being met with failure. She told him, I have faith that your master can cast out this demon that terrorizes my child. I have heard of his mighty works in Galilee, and I believe in him. What has happened to you, his disciples, that you would send away those who would come seeking your master's help? At that point, Thomas backed off from pressuring her anymore. Then it was Simon Zelotes' turn to try and get her to go home. He said, Woman, you are a Greek-speaking Gentile. It is not right that you should expect the master to take the bread meant for the children of his favorite household and cast it 
to the dogs. But Narana refused to get mad at Simon and just said, Yes, teacher, I understand your words. I am only a dog in the eyes of the Jews. But as concerns your master, I am a believing dog. I am determined that he will see my daughter because I know that if he would just look at her, she would be healed. And even you, my good man, would not dare to deprive dogs of the privilege of getting the crumbs that by chance fall from the children's table. Just then, the young girl had a seizure in front of all of them, and Narana cried out, There, you can see that my child is possessed by an evil spirit. If our need does not impress you, it would appeal to your master, who I have been told loves all men and dares to even heal the Gentiles when they believe. You are not worthy to be his disciples. I will not go until my child has been cured. To everyone's surprise, Jesus who had heard all of this going on through an open window, came outside. He said, O woman, great is your faith, so great that I cannot withhold what you want. Go your way in peace. Your daughter has already been healed. And the little girl was well from that hour. As Narana and the child left, Jesus asked them to tell no one about what had happened. And again, while the apostles and the evangelist did what he wanted, Norana and her daughter did not. And they told so many people across the countryside and in the Sidon that within a few days, Jesus had to find someplace else to stay. The next day, when talking with his apostles, Jesus said, and so it has been all along the way. You can see for yourselves that the Gentiles can have faith in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and save themselves. It is the truth when I tell you that the Father's kingdom will be taken by the Gentiles if Abraham's children do not show enough faith to enter it. Teaching in Sidon. There was a bridge that people had to cross to get into Sidon. For many of the apostles and evangelists, this was the first bridge that they had ever seen. As they walked over it to Sidon, among other things, Jesus said, This world is only a bridge. You can pass over it but you should not think about building a home on it. The apostles and evangelists spread out to do their work in Sidon. Jesus went just north of the city to stay with Justa and her mother, Bernice. In the mornings, the 24 would show up at Justa's house to meet with Jesus, and then in the afternoon and evenings, they would teach and preach in Sidon. The 24 were excited about their reception in Sidon. It was a fruitful harvest, and during their six weeks in Phoenicia, 
many new converts were added to the kingdom. But later, the Jews who wrote the Gospels, the Jews who wrote the Gospels, downplayed the apostles' success here, because at the time, so many of their own people were hostile against Jesus. In many ways, these Gentile believers respected Jesus' teachings more than the Jews. Many of these Greek-speaking Syrophoenicians could not only understand that Jesus was like God, but also that God was like Jesus. These so-called heathens understood Jesus when he taught that laws are uniform throughout this world and the entire universe, that God is no respecter of races, people, or nations, that the universal Father has no favorites, that the universe is always law-abiding and dependable. These Gentiles were not afraid of Jesus. They dared to accept his message. Throughout history, it has not been that men are unable to understand Jesus, but rather that they have been afraid to know him. Jesus made it clear to the 24 that he did not flee from Galilee because he was afraid to confront his enemies. They understood that he was not yet ready for an open clash with established religion and that he did not want to become a martyr. It was during one of these talks at Justice House that Jesus first told his disciples that even though heaven and earth will pass away, my truth will not. The focus of Jesus' teaching in Sidon was spiritual progression. He told the apostles and evangelists that they could not stand still, that they must go forward in righteousness or fall back into evil and sin. He warned them, Forget those things that are in the past while you push forward to embrace the greater realities of the kingdom. He asked them to not be content being mere children in the gospel of heaven, but to work to become full sons of God in the divine brotherhood of the kingdom. Jesus said, My disciples must not only stop doing evil, but they must also learn to do well. You must not only rid yourself of all conscious sin, but you must also refuse to harbor even the feelings of guilt. If you confess your sins, they are forgiven. Because of that, you must keep your mind free of those types of memories still hanging on from the past. Jesus really enjoyed the Gentile sense of humor, and it was Narana's sense of humor, along with her insistent faith, that had touched Jesus' heart and begged for his mercy. Jesus really felt sorry that his people, the Jews, had so little humor in their lives. At one time, he said to Thomas, My people 
take themselves way too seriously. They have almost no sense of humor. The Pharisees' oppressive religion would never have happened among people with a sense of humor. The Pharisees also lack consistency. They worry about little flies, but swallow camels. The Journey Up the Coast On Tuesday, June 28th, Jesus and the others left Sidon and walked up the coast to Porphyrion and Heljua. The apostles teached in Porphyrion and the evangelists taught in Heljua. The people received them well and many new converts were added to the kingdom. Meanwhile, Jesus went over to Beirut on the coast and met with a Syrian named Malak. He was a believer who had been at Bethsaida the year before. On Wednesday, July 6th, everyone regrouped again at Justice House, and they hung out there until they left for Tyre on Sunday morning. They took the coastal route, took the coastal route south through Sarepta and got to Tyre on Monday, July 11th. The apostles were getting more comfortable working with the people in these parts. While they were called the so-called Gentiles, most of them were descendants of the Canaanite tribes who themselves descended from the Semitic tribes before them. All of them spoke Greek, and the apostles were happily surprised at their eagerness to learn of the gospel and their readiness to believe it. At Tyre For almost two weeks, from July 11th to 24th, they taught in Tyre. The apostles and evangelists paired up together, and two by two, they went out through all the parts of this busy seaport, preaching the gospel. The people in Tyre were a mixed lot, speaking many languages. And again, the gospel was well received, and many new believers were brought into the kingdom. During this time, Jesus stayed at the home of a Jewish believer named Joseph, several miles away, not far from the tomb of Hiram, who had been the king of Tyre when it was a city-state during the times of David and Solomon. Every day during these two weeks, the 24 would pass through Alexander's Mole to get into Tyre and hold small meetings. And then at night, most of them would return to the camp to be with Jesus at Joseph's house south of the city. And every day, people would come out from Tyre to see Jesus. Jesus only spoke in Tyre once. That was the afternoon of July 20th. He taught the people that the Father loves every man and about the Son's mission to show the Father to all of the races of men. The people were so interested in Jesus' message that the doors to the Melchorath Temple were opened to him.
Interestingly, many years later, a Christian church was built on the exact site of this ancient temple. Tyre and Sidon were famous around the world because it was where people made a dye called Tyrian purple. The worldwide commerce that resulted from making this dye did a lot to enrich those cities, and many of the leaders manufacturing the Tyrian purple were believers in the gospel. A short time after Jesus' visit to Tyre, the shellfish that produced this dye for some reason died off in that part of the coast. Because of that, the dye makers left Tyre. And in the process of looking for new places to harvest their shellfish, they migrated to the ends of the earth, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of heaven everywhere they went. Jesus' teachings at Tyre. During his talk to the people in Tyre on this Wednesday afternoon, Jesus began with the story of the white lily. This beautiful flower rears its pure and snowy head high into the sunshine, while its roots are deep in the slime and muck below. It is the same with people, Jesus said. He told them that while man has his roots in the animal soil of human nature, man, by faith, can raise his spiritual nature high into the sunlight of heavenly truth and, in the process, bear the noble fruits of the Spirit. During this sermon, Jesus told the people a parable that had to do with carpentry. This was the only time he used his former trade to teach the people. He had just told the people, build well the foundation needed for the growth of a noble character of spiritual gifts. When he then said, in order to grow spiritual fruit, you must be spiritually born. You must be led and taught by the Spirit if you want to live a Spirit-filled life among your friends. But do not make the mistake of the foolish carpenter who wastes valuable time squaring, measuring, and smoothing his worm-eaten and inwardly rotten timber. And who then, after he has put all of his work into the bad wood, cannot use it for the foundation of his building that needed to be able to withstand the ravages of time and storm. Every person has to make sure that the moral and intellectual foundation of their character is strong enough to support the superstructure of their growing and ennobling spirituality. And that is to transform the human mind and then along with that recreated mind, evolve the immortal soul. Your spiritual nature, the soul created by you and the Spirit of God inside of you, is alive and growing. But it is your mind and your morals that make up the soil 
from which these higher signs of the Spirit can spring forth. The soil for the evolving soul is material, but the destiny of the soul is divine. Later in the evening, that same day, Nathaniel asked Jesus, Master, why do we pray that God will lead us not into temptation, when we well know from your revelation of the Father that he never does such things? Jesus said, It is not strange that you ask such questions, seeing that you are beginning to know the Father like I know him, and not like the early Hebrew prophets who barely saw him. You well know how our ancestors thought they saw God in almost everything that happened. They looked for God's hand in all natural occurrences and in anything unusual that happened. They connected God to both good and evil. They thought God softened the heart of Moses and that he hardened the heart of the Pharaoh. When a man had a strong urge to do something, whether good or evil, he was in the habit of making an excuse for these desires by saying, the Lord spoke to me saying, do this and do that, or go here and go there. So, since men were so often and so violently tempted, it became our forefathers' habit to believe that God led them there to test them, punish them, or to make them stronger. But you, indeed, know better now. You know that men are all too often tempted by their own selfishness and animal natures. When you are tempted this way, I warn you to recognize that temptation honestly and sincerely for just what it is. Then, intelligently redirect the energies of your spirit, mind, and body, which are seeking expression, into higher channels and toward more idealistic goals. This is how you transform your temptations into higher spiritual goals, while you avoid these wasteful and weakening fights between the animal and spiritual natures inside of you. But let me warn you against the stupidity of trying to overcome temptation and be a better person just through willpower. If you really want to rid yourself of the temptations of your lower self, you have to have the spiritual advantage of truly wanting to be a better person. This way, you succeed through spiritual transformation instead of deceiving yourself by suppressing your desires. The old and the inferior will then be forgotten in the love for the new and the superior. Beauty always triumphs over ugliness in the hearts of all people who are illuminated by the truth, by the love of truth. A new 
and sincere spiritual desire has great power to rid a person of their animal nature. And again, I am telling you, be not overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. The apostles and evangelists continued to ask Jesus questions long into the night. The following are some of the topics that they covered. Forceful ambition, intelligent judgment, and seasoned wisdom are the essentials of material success. Leadership is dependent on discretion, determination, willpower, and natural ability. Spiritual destiny is dependent on love, faith, and devotion to the truth, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and a wholehearted desire to find God and to be like Him. Do not become discouraged by discovering that you are human. Human nature may tend toward evil, but it is not inherently sinful. Do not be downcast by your failure to forget some of your regrettable experiences. The mistakes that you fail to forget in time will be forgotten in eternity. Lighten your soul's burdens by quickly developing a long-distance view of your destiny, the expansion of your career throughout the universe. Do not make the mistake of estimating the soul's worth by mental imperfections or the body's appetites. Do not judge the soul or evaluate a soul's destiny by a single unfortunate human episode. Your spiritual destiny is conditioned only by your spiritual longings and purposes. Religion is only about the spiritual experience of the evolving soul of the God-knowing man. But morality and spirituality are mighty forces that can be used to deal with difficult social situ situations and to solve tricky economic problems. These moral and spiritual gifts make all levels of life richer and more meaningful. You are certain to live a mean and narrow life if you learn to only love those people who love you. Love may indeed be give and take, but divine love is outgoing in all that it seeks. The less love there is in a creature's nature, the greater the need there is for love, and the more that divine love seeks to satisfy that need. Love is never self-seeking. It cannot be self-bestowed. Divine love cannot be self-contained. It must be unselfishly given out to others. Those who believe in the kingdom of God need to have a complete unspoken faith and certainty that righteousness will win. Those building the kingdom cannot doubt the gospel of eternal salvation. Believers must increasingly learn 
how to step aside from the rush of life, escape the harassment of material existence, and refresh the soul, inspire the mind, and renew the spirit with worship. God-knowing men are not discouraged by misfortune or downcast by disappointment. Those who believe in the kingdom of heaven are immune to the depression that comes with life's problems. People who live in the spirit are not upset by the material world. Those who want eternal life are resourceful at meeting life's problems and every day they find it easier to do the right thing. A spiritual life greatly increases true self-respect, but that is not self-admiration. Self-respect always includes love and service for others. It is not possible to respect yourself more than you love your neighbor. The one is the measure of the other. As the days pass, every true believer becomes more skillful in bringing others to love the eternal truth. Are you more resourceful in revealing goodness to humanity today than you were yesterday? Are you a more righteous example this year than you were last year? Are you becoming increasingly artistic in the way you lead hungry souls to the spiritual kingdom? Are your ideals high enough to ensure your eternal salvation while your ideas are practical enough to make you a useful citizen? In the spirit, your citizenship is in heaven. In the flesh, you are still citizens of earthly kingdoms. Render to the Caesars the things that are material, and to God those that are spiritual. The spiritual capacity of your evolving soul is based on your faith in truth and your love for man. But the measure of your strength of character is your ability to resist holding grudges and to not fret in the face of sorrow. Defeat is the mirror you need to use to honestly see who you really are. As you grow older and more experienced, are you becoming more tactful? In other words, more skillful and sensitive when dealing with troublesome people? And are you more tolerant living with stubborn friends? Tact is the fulcrum of social leverage, and tolerance is the earmark of a great soul. If you possess these rare and charming gifts, you will become more alert and expert in your ability to stay out of unnecessary social misunderstandings. Such wise souls are able to avoid a lot of the trouble that comes to people who lack emotional adjustment, refuse to give, grow up, and who refuse to grow old gracefully. Avoid dishonesty and unfairness in all your efforts to preach truth 
and proclaim the gospel. Do not seek unearned recognition or crave undeserved sympathy. Love, freely received from both divine and human sources, and love freely in return. But in all other things related to honor and praise, only look for that honestly yours. The God-conscious mortal is certain of salvation. He is unafraid of life, and he is honest and consistent. He knows how to bravely endure unavoidable suffering, and he does not complain when faced with inescapable hardship. The true believer does not grow tired doing well just because he has problems. Difficulties and obstacles only make the lover of truth more excited, passionate, and resolved. And Jesus taught his crew many other things before they got ready to leave Tyre. The day before Jesus left Tyre, to go back to the area around the Sea of Galilee, he called everyone together. He told the twelve evangelists to take a route different than the one that he and the twelve apostles were going to take. And after the evangelists left, they were never again so closely associated with Jesus. The Return from Phoenicia About noon on Sunday, July 24th, Jesus and the twelve apostles left Joseph's house south of Tyre and headed down the coast to Ptolemais. They hung out there for a day ministering to the people. And then the next evening, Peter gave a sermon. Tuesday morning they left and going inland, they headed east on the Tiberias Road. On Wednesday, they got to Hotapata, and they did some teaching, and then on Thursday, they continued northward on the Nazareth Mount Lebanon Trail. They met with people in Ramah on Friday, stayed over there for the Sabbath, and made it to Zebulun, a small village, on Sunday the 31st. That evening, they held a meeting with the people, and then they left the next morning. They first went to the junction of the Magdala-Sidon Road near Jasala, and then they made their way to Genseray on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, south of Capernaum. They had arranged to meet David Zebedee there. They had arranged to meet David Zebedee there so that they could all plan their next moves. Talking with David, they found out that many leaders were right then gathered together on the other side of the lake named near Caressa. So that evening, they got a boat to take them across. For a day, they rested in the hills. And then the next day, they went to the park where Jesus had fed the 5,000. They rested there for three days and had daily meetings with the remnants of the once many believers who lived in Capernaum and the surrounding area. 
While Jesus was away from Capernaum and Galilee visiting Phoenicia, his enemies figured that the whole movement had been broken up. They thought that since Jesus had been in such a rush to leave, it meant that he was so thoroughly frightened that he would probably never return to bother them. All active opposition to his teaching had just about ended. The believers were beginning to hold public meetings once more, and there was a gradual but effective consolidation of the tried and true believers, of the great sifting that the gospel believers had just passed through. Philip, Herod's brother, had become a half-hearted believer in Jesus and sent word that he was free to live and work in his lands. The order to close all of the synagogues to Jesus' teachings had backfired on the scribes and the Pharisees. As soon as Jesus removed himself as an object of controversy, there was a general resentment among the people against the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin leaders in Jerusalem. Many of the rulers of the synagogues had already begun to quietly open their synagogues to Abner and his group, claiming that these teachers were John's followers and not Jesus' disciples. Even Herod Antipas experienced a change of heart, and when he learned that Jesus was staying across the lake in his brother Philip's land, Herod sent word to Jesus saying that, while he had signed warrants for his arrest in Galilee, he had not authorized his arrest in Peria. He was telling Jesus that he would not be molested if he stayed outside of Galilee, and he sent the same ruling to the Jews in Jerusalem. And that was the situation around the 1st of August, A.D. 29, when Jesus returned from his work on the Phoenician coast and began to reorganize his tested, scattered, and depleted forces for this last and eventful year of his mission on earth. The battle lines have been clearly drawn, and Jesus and the apostles got ready to begin announcing a new religion, the religion of God's living spirit dwelling in the minds of men. Okay, everyone, that's it for chapter 35. The stay at Tyre and Sidon. Coming up in a few days is chapter 36. At Caesarea Philippi. Defend liberty. Protect our kids. Get out there and find some way to serve man for the sake of God. Bobby Keezer, out here.